Let's get to Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. And we're going to continue a series of messages that we began last week called, It's Not About Us. And oddly enough, <laughs> this, this series of messages is actually about us. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is that about every 12 months, about once a year, uh, I like to take the congregation through um, some of the bedrock, uh, the passages of scripture that form the bedrock of our understanding of what this church is and who we are. Because I don't know about you, I have zero tolerance. I have no desire to just do church, to just hold meetings, have programs, invite people to stuff. I'm done with that. I've been, <laughs> I've been a part of the church my, pretty much my whole life, so I know what this outfit is about, and sometimes it drifts into just that, just doing stuff. And I don't want to do just do stuff. I want to be the church. I want to be a part of a group of people who are on a mission for God. I imagine that's probably true for you too. Otherwise, you wouldn't put up with me. But you are here and, and very, uh, uh, very kindly um, letting me talk to you. So I imagine that's where, where you're at too. But it is really easy to lose sight of the reasons for why we do things. Have you ever noticed that? If there's something that you do with repetition or frequent, frequently, you can easily stop uh, being aware of the why. You just do stuff because it's, it's what you do. And we can't afford, uh, as the Church of Jesus Christ, to just do stuff and forget why. And so, without apology, about every year we come back to some of these uh, themes that resonate so deeply in my heart and within the DNA of what this congregation is. And so... For these weeks, we really are talking to ourselves in a way. And so in that sense, it's about us. But in the broader sense, one of the foundational values that we have as a congregation is if we are doing what God has called us to do, then it isn't about us. It's about those he died to save. Those whom he is after to redeem, restore, uh, revive, and renew. And so that's where we got this title, It's Not About Us. And last week we looked at Luke chapter 5 and the story of Jesus in the house teaching to a f packed house. I mean, in other words, someone's home is filled with uh, religious leaders and others who are there to listen to him speak. And some guys have a friend who is paralyzed and they want to get him to Jesus so that Jesus could perhaps heal him. They can't get in the house because it's so full. So they go up on the roof, tear the roof apart and lower their friend down to Jesus. Their friend gets healed. It's an amazing story and I won't re-preach uh, re that sermon. But out of it, there are four values that we hold in Crossroads that are very very important and significant to us. And we're going to deal with them after having uh, had kind of an introduction or overview last week. We're going to deal with them now in a little more depth, each uh, uh, one at a time. <clears throat> Excuse me, one each week, <clears throat> one at a time. And so this week we're going to talk about the first of those, which is that we are captivated by the presence of the power of God to change lives. If there is anything 
that uh, summarize what it means to us when we say it's not about us. It's this. We are captured by this thought that God is present. He is present and his purpose in being present is to save, to change, to heal, to restore, to redeem. We have a God who is present to change lives. We are over the moon with that notion. We are sold out. to We are slaves, if you please, to that idea that the God who made all things is present with power to change lives. And one of the passages of Scripture that illustrate that for me more than any other is Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 12. We're going to start reading there in a moment. This, is the, this happens at the beginning of the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. It says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. I'll come back and explain what that means in a little bit. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. You may be wondering, well, what are they selling birds in the temple for? I'll come back and talk about that in a minute. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now Jesus shows up and just, and remember the temple, first of all, is one of the wonders of the world. It's lovely in every way. It's massive. It's, uh, what goes on there is well orchestrated uh, with uh, a commitment to excellence. When you went there for uh, some sort of program or celebration or worship, I mean, it was the best. Squeaky, clean, and uh, well-oiled machinery, man. And Jesus comes in and just makes a total mess of the place. Now, if, it, if you did that here this morning, I'd have the ushers take you out. <laughs> but here Jesus comes in and just, he just turns everything on its head. Why? Because it wasn't what he intended for it to be. He said, he said my house is supposed to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer. You, and by the way, prayer is what? Prayer is conversing, interacting with, communicating with God. My house is supposed to be a place where people encounter God, where people have a conversation, where people interact with God. That's what my house is supposed to be. But you have made it a den of thieves. I said that we are over the moon. We are, we are captivated with this notion that God himself is present with the power to change lives. When we, every time we get together, we want it to be that that's what's ringing in our minds. God is present and he is present to change lives. That means when we get together, we want God in the house. That's what's happening here. God, in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is in the house. And when God is in the house, some things happen. Three things in particular I want to talk to you about today. The first is that religiosity is confronted. 
When Jesus was kicking out the people who sold uh, the sacrificial animals and overturning the tables of the money changers, he was confronting religiosity. Now, you may be wondering, well, I thought religion was a good thing. Well, yes, in a, in a, in a, in, there is a sense in which religion is a good thing. In fact, the New Testament gives us some um, help in understanding what true religion, good religion is. But as I'm using that term today, and as most of us encounter religion in this life, it is not a good thing. Religion in this sense is human effort, human attempts to please or gain favor with God. First of all, it can't be done. There is nothing I can do from my side of things to bridge the gap of sin that separates me from God. I can't do anything. How, how, no matter how hard I work, no matter how many of the Ten Commandments I keep, no, how, no, no matter how nice I am to Arnie, I cannot bridge this gap between me and God. Only he could do that and he did it. He sent Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for my sin. That gap is closed now, dear ones. I don't have to do anything to earn God's favor. When I have come to faith in Jesus Christ, I have God's favor. And so now when I do things that honor him and please him, it's not to earn his favor. It's because he's working in my life. I can't be any other way. You see the difference? Religion is my efforts to be what I think God wants me to be. But what he's called us to do is just live out of this relationship that I have with him. He said, my house is supposed to be a place where people meet God. But you've made it a den, a closed system. You got to know you know, when to stand up, when to sit down, when to cross yourself. You need to know what, what words to say. What to wear? You've made it a den of thieves. Not only is this not a place where people encounter me, you are stealing my presence from them. You've made it a closed system that in effect is stealing my presence from the very people that I want to be present with. How does that happen? Well, I'll tell you what, it happens fast. Religiosity sneaks up on us quick. There's a little tiny Pharisee. You know what I mean by that? You know, the guys who made their, made their living uh, in religion, you know? The Pharisees, they were always in, in opposition to Jesus. There's a little bitty Pharisee in every one of us. Turn to the person next to you and say, I, I think I see your Pharisee. No. It sneaks up on us fast. We don't get to point fingers at this church or that church or this group or that group and say, hey, we're not religious. They are, but we're not. No, I'm not. look. <laughs> it, it creeps up on all of us and it creeps up fast. See, what we do in the life of a congregation, what, the people, what, what we do, the things we do as the people of God, they are supposed to spring out of a responsiveness. Or it's supposed to be a responsive innovation. In other words, if we start a new ministry here in Crossroads, we want it to be because we are responding to something that a need that's present or something God is speaking to us, and then we create something. It's a responsive innovation. But responsive innovation can become really quickly just plain habitual practice. 
We, we do that because we've always done it. We have men's institute, we have micro church, we have second Fridays because that's what we do. It's so fast that things become just habitual practice. And then if we're not careful, those same things can become spiritual or excuse me, sacred ritual. They sort of take on a, 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 um, a religious tone. You know, in other words, if you mess with that, you know, that's like the third rail. It's, this is a sacred ritual. And I don't have any problem with ritual for ritual's sake. I enjoy it. Like we have a Christmas tree at Christmas. And you, can, you might not think that's godly. We have one in our house. And it's a kind of a ritual we do. I'm not opposed to that per se. But when things drift into sacred, being sacred ritual, they are close to losing their life if they haven't already. Because the next tip is that things become just plain lifeless Religion. You have all had the experience of being with Christian people in a church setting or, a, or a, some kind of gathering of the people of God where stuff went on there and you just go, why? Why do, why do they do that? Well, that's why. It sneaks up on us. Things that began as responsive innovation eventually become simply lifeless religion and that's what Jesus was coming after that day he was confronting religion you see the the it says that he you know he um so he kicked out the guys who were selling doves what that means is that there were people in the temple or in the temple compound the temple grounds that were selling sacrificial animals because when you came to the temple part of your worship was you offered a sacrifice. Now, the, the, the Hebrews were spread through the world. And so, at this point, they were coming from all over the place. And, you know, if you're going to offer a lamb for your sacrifice and you're coming from Ethiopia, that's a long way to drag that little lamb. And so, the responsive innovation of these, the leaders of the temple was, all right, we'll make it possible for people to buy their sacrificial animals when they get here will help facilitate worship. Sounds like a good idea, right? And it probably was for a while until we started figuring out how to make money on this thing. And so the, you know, if you were going to set up your little stall where you sold doves or uh, you know, lambs or whatever sacrificial animals you were vending there, you either paid rent, we're not sure, you either paid a rent or a kickback to the temple based on the sales, a percentage of the sales or whatever. You know, you can imagine how this works out. So now you come from Ethiopia and you do drag your little lamb all the way there and you come before the priest who has to inspect it to make sure that it's without blemish so that it can serve as an actual sacrifice and you bring your lamb to him. He is disincented to pronounce that animal clean. Because if he doesn't, he can send you over to the vendor and you'll buy another one and he'll get kickback or the temple will get kickback of money. So now you got this weird thing. I mean, look, stuff in church just goes weird and it goes weird fast. If we aren't vigilant, religiosity can overtake things. The same with the money changers. If you've ever been out of the country, you know that you need to change your U.S. dollars for whatever the currency of that country is so you can conduct business there. Well, people, the Jews were coming from all over the world and they would bring the coin of their realm and they would want to be, you know, the, the realm where they lived and they'd be wanting to make 
financial contribution to the temple, and they would have to exchange their money because to solve this problem, the temple had its own monetary system. That way, everybody was making their gifts in the same currency, but you had to exchange your money. And so outside in the temple grounds, there were guys who would, who would make that exchange. And you know if you've ever done this, the guy who makes the exchange skims off a percentage, right? So again, there's this weird thing that's happening that began with the best of intentions of trying to help people, to try to help them to connect with God, to facilitate worship. So this can be a a house of prayer. But things go south fast if we're not careful. That little Pharisee inside of us will take the things that are begun with the best of intentions and responsive to God, responsive to need, and turn them upside down. They become really weird. I oversee several pastors and One of them is fairly new. He's been on the job for uh, about a year now up in Ukiah. When he first came in, a lot of new things were happening. New pastor, new worship team. Some people left. A lot of more people, a lot of other, a lot of other people have come. You know, the church has grown a lot since he's been there. It's a good thing, except that what happened was one of the new worship team members got up on the platform with a baseball cap on. Well, we don't do that here. And there's, you know, a contingent of people who are left over from the, you know, from, you know, been in the church a long time. And he, that new pastor almost had a war on his hands over whether you could wear a baseball cap in the house of God. Look, I, I, I can appreciate that, that, you know, you think it's a, a disrespectful and, and all that. And that's okay. But I think most of us would say, really, hat or no hat, that makes such a big difference? Uh... I don't think it really does. But you see, things get weird. They get weird in the church if we're not careful. They get religious. You know, I am old enough, and you wouldn't have any problem believing that, but I am old enough that I remember as a 13, 14, 15-year-old kid being in my Baptist church and having meetings about congregational meetings. We got together. All of us got together for congregational meetings to decide whether or not we could actually have guitars in the church. Because those unholy, you know, rock and roll instruments, how in the world could you have that ungodly stuff in the house of God? Things get weird, man. I'm telling you. I remember in the first church that I pastored, uh, we were a fairly large congregation. We had... Two main uh, worship teams. They just traded off every other week in all of the services. And within about a two-week time, uh, time frame, both the drummers and at least one of the bass players, I can't, it might have been even both bass players, they all moved away at the same time. And I had people come to me and they say, Oh, Pastor, how will we worship? <laughs> and I would like, Really? I'm, I failed you that badly to, to teach you what really what real worship is? I mean, seriously, we can't worship God if we don't have drums and a bass? I mean, things get weird. You, many of you wouldn't know this because you've become a part of our congregation uh, fairly recently, but... Uh, not that long ago, if you would have come into this building, there would have been little round bistro tables all, all around the, the auditorium here. And that predated me. 
And it was part of the congregation's desire to make our, our uh, assembly more um, comfortable, more like being in, you know, someone's uh, living room or at a Starbucks or something like that. Best of intentions and served a purpose. He created a unique environment for this congregation. But eventually, those tables were taking up chair space. And eventually, it stopped being what it once was. I think there were 12 of these little tables in this room, and there's like 200 seats, and so it was, wasn't the same thing. You couldn't get around one of them. I mean, you have, if you're sitting next to one, okay. But And I remember, you know, how delicately I had to handle that when I started to say, I think it's time for these to go. Not to make anyone feel bad, but I mean, we just get to this place where these things, they almost become sacred. Not that long ago, even some of you are, are, are new enough to this congregation, wouldn't you know that, but, but within the last year, this changed. We used to have right in the middle of our worship service, right in the middle of our church service, we had a food break, full-on breakfast. Yes. About, I don't know, about four years ago or so, I had a bunch of our leaders together and a whiteboard, and I wrote on it, Could, can Crossroads be Crossroads without a, a food break? And there, it was silent in there. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. And I just kept working at it and working at it. Look, we all survived. Nobody, nobody died of starvation. It got to be a, play, a thing where it just couldn't be sustained. I mean, the amount of food that had to be prepared and so on, and if we we're going to continue to grow. I mean, how do you serve a full-on breakfast to a 1,000 people on a Sunday morning? can't be done. So what I'm saying is these are relatively minor examples, but I need your help. We need to help each other to ensure that Crossroads does not become weird. <laughs> and it happens fast. When Jesus is in the house, he comes after religion. When Jesus is in the house, he also, uh, or he creates an environment where childlike simplicity and passion arise. It says here, let's go on and read in verse uh, 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I'll come back to that. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yeah, I do. Haven't you ever read, oh, what a dig that was. I mean, these guys, they knew the scriptures. They had them memorized. He said, yeah, but haven't you ever read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. One of the things that happens when Jesus is in the house is that childlike simplicity and passion arise. I already explained to you that what went on in the temple was of the highest order in every way. Undoubtedly, the squeaky, breaking voice of a child would not have been heard anywhere on the grounds there. But when, when God is in the house, things change. It's not about losing uh, of the value 
that we place on, or forfeiting the value that we place on excellence. I hold no brief for anybody doing anything within the context of church that isn't our best effort. It isn't the best we have to bring. I mean, the Lord is worthy of nothing less than our best, ever. He's never, um, we, we never get to say, oh, well, it's just church. Huh, come on. So I, I'm not saying that. But you know what it's like when the polish, when the shine is more important than the substance. When the effort to make something spectacular overshadows the childlikeness and the passion that, that needs to shine through. The likelihood that you're ever going to encounter within Crossroads a platform-oriented ministry that is highly polished and, you know, without any kind of, you know, pardon me, uh, Drew, but it was great this morning when you forgot that line you were singing in the worship service. <laughs> Most of you probably didn't even know that, and now I just outed him and... I wouldn't trade this childlike simplicity and passion that came through our worship this morning for a perfect presentation? I, come on. Let's, when God is in the house, childlike, child, childlike is not childish. Those are two different things. Immaturity, that's not what we're after. But that simple, oh God, I love you and I want to serve you and I, I know I don't have it all together, but here I come. That old man, oh, that's just so priceless and a high value that we have. I was at my grandson's soccer game yesterday. It's been a long time since I've been to a soccer game. Um, you know, I used to be out there all day, every Saturday and half a day on Sunday with my kids. But I went to my grandson, he's six, I went to his soccer game yesterday, and you know what? <laughs> he, play, he played two quarters, they have four quarters, and I don't know why, but they play four quarters, and he's out there for two of them, and the entire time, I mean, he did a lot of running around, but uh, he was socializing. He was chatting up everybody, giving them hugs and stuff, even the other team members and stuff. Every once in a while, the ball would get near him and his mom and dad would be going, Nolan, Nolan, and he'd go, what? <laughs> At some point, they're not going to keep him on the team. You know, if he's, when he's in high school, he's not going to be able to do that, right? But thank God he can now. That that childlike simplicity and passion trumps winning and losing and kicking a ball around. And man, I just, the church needs to be that way. I'll tell you something that bugs me. <laughs> After service, you know, uh, a lot of times on a Sunday, one of the little kids will get up here on the drum set and start banging away. Or now, they go next door because it, nobody's watching, right? <laughs> and they do it. And it bugs me. But I have a real battle saying no. I have, it's really hard for, the, for me to tell them to stop. 
because I want them to imagine themselves up here doing that. I want them to get a hold of the microphone like they do over there and holler into it and stuff. I want them to get used to that idea. I could do this. I want that. When Jesus is in, the, is in the house, another thing that happens is the broken are welcomed and made whole. It says the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You know, the blind and the lame, the broken, were not welcome in the temple because they weren't perfect. You could be outside on the temple steps or whatever, begging for alms, but you, you know, you don't welcome in here. When God is in the house, that changes. The blind and the lame came to him and they were healed. Look, I'm looking at a lot of blind and lame people who have come to the healing power of Jesus Christ. And we don't pull the ladder up behind us. There's a thing called, the sociologists will tell you this, there's a thing called redemptive lift. That's what they call it. Where the gospel begins to impact people's lives. And it starts to change lots of stuff about their lives. It's how they do business, how they raise their families, how they love each other as spouses. And there's this rising tide of blessing and goodness that happens. And I observe it in the congregational life of, of, of this um, church. But as things start to do better in lots of areas of our lives, we lose sight of the fact that we once were broken, seriously broken. And we want to just surround ourselves with people who are not so much anymore. And we can't pull a ladder up behind us. When God is in the house, the blind and the lame, they come so that he can heal them. I want to take you back to one other thing before I let you go this morning, and that's where Jesus was talking about, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That phrase that he lifted out of Isaiah chapter 56 is part of a bigger passage of Scripture that all of these guys that he was speaking to would have known. So when he said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, their minds, they knew the whole context. They had it memorized. They knew Isaiah 56. They knew what he was referring to. What he was referring to is in Isaiah 56. It tells us exactly who the two types of people are that this is supposed to be a house of prayer for. It says it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, it says there, but it specifies two kinds of people. One, the foreigner. The person who doesn't have any natural connections to the things of God. If you weren't a Jew, you had no natural connection to the temple. You were not welcomed. You couldn't, if you were a Gentile, you were uncircumcised, you couldn't come to the temple. You had no place, no connection to Jehovah. That was the message that they were sending. But God, and I, through the prophet Isaiah, said, wait a minute. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for the foreigner. Read it for yourself. All around us, in fact, maybe even here today, all around us, there are people who don't, they weren't raised in Christian homes. They weren't, they weren't if they had a religious background, it was, uh, it was uh, not considered by them to be a blessing. They don't know the God who loves them. And they don't have any way to connect with him except through you and me.
this, wherever God is, when God is in the house, he means for it to be a place where the unwashed masses encounter him. Those who have not experienced redemptive lift yet. You following me? In Isaiah 56, not only does it say that my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for the foreigner, but also for the eunuch. And you've heard me say this before, some of you. But a eunuch was a man who was castrated for the purpose of serving a king as the one who managed the harem so he wouldn't be a sexual threat to the king. And kings in those days were considered gods. So what it was is you traded part of your body. You bore scars, literal scars, so that you could serve a false god. And there are lots of us here today who bear the scars of our, our idolatry. Certainly, in the communities around us, in the circles of our influence, there are people who bear deep scars. They are, they've been mutilated by their idolatry. God said, my house is supposed to be a place where they meet me. And everything that they have thought about how they are disqualified. It says there, you read it yourself. It says there, everything they've thought about, well, I'm just, you know, I, I'm so broken. I'm so messed up. I, the, there's no hope for me. God said they should never get that idea from you. Talking to his people. And when Jesus stood in the temple that day and said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. That's what he was talking about. He says, you've made it a closed system that robs me, uh, robs people of my presence. Dear ones, let's decide together that we will always be a place where God is present with the power to change lives. And when he's in the house, there will be no room for religiosity. The childlike simplicity and passion will always arise and where the blind and the lame are healed. This is recording number 11122 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, September 14th. 2014. This is the second message in a series by Randy Bolt titled, It's Not About Us. This message is titled, Captivated When Jesus is in the House.